Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. New details about the armed suspect arrested in former President Obama's D.C. neighborhood last week. Federal prosecutors say the man, who already faces charges for the January 6th insurrection, went to the Obama's neighborhood after former President Trump posted what he claimed was the Obama's address on his social media platform. We have much more on that in a moment. Plus, we have newly revealed information on what the Justice Department told a federal court before the FBI did that search of Mar-a-Lago. This includes surveillance footage outside of a storage room where classified documents were kept in boxes. Prosecutors say that evidence was moved. And a surge of deadly shootings over the 4th of July holiday. I'll speak with gun owners about their solutions to mass shootings. If we are gonna live in a nation that has millions of guns in circulation, then how do we live with them responsibly? A lot of times it's a child getting their hands on their parents' guns and committing suicide. Imagine living with that. Okay, but let's begin with new details about the suspect who was arrested outside of former President Obama's home last week. Prosecutors say Taylor Toronto traveled to the neighborhood after Donald Trump posted about it on social media. CNN's Caitlin Polance is following this case. Caitlin. Allison, this man is an accused January 6th rioter who's just now being arrested by federal authorities, and that's because he was indeed encountering the Secret Service outside of the Obama residence in Washington, D.C. last week, just after he acknowledged that he had seen Donald Trump's posting on social media uh, of a newsletter that had the Obama's address in it. And so this story uh, is really uh, just highlighting all of the things that have taken place in this man's life, Taylor Tarento, uh, up until this point, years after the Capitol insurrection. So he had been on authorities' radar. Um, he was live streaming regularly, had talked about being an insurrectionist, said, look, Ma, uh, I'm on TV. I'm an insurrectionist at one point this year. And then in recent weeks was living out of his van, federal authorities believe, in Washington, D.C. He had come the whole way from across the country where he had a family, but was living here and repeating repeatedly talking about January 6th and had a number of uh, apparent targets that prosecutors say made him a possible flight risk, a possible risk to the community. Uh, one of those things was that last week he was filming himself uh, and saying that he wanted to take his van uh, and use it to self-detonate, blow up a federal building that has uh, nuclear equipment at it, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And then that's when 
when he was being tracked the very next day is when he then goes into the same neighborhood that the Obamas live in in Washington, D.C., encounters the Secret Service that protect that area, gets into a chase with them where he finally gets cornered in the woods near their house. And then federal authorities look in his van, find not only that mattress that he apparently was sleeping on in Washington, D.C., but also two guns, hundreds of rounds of ammunition and a machete. And so this man, Taylor Tarento, he is now in the federal court system charged by criminal complaint related to his actions on January 6th, two years ago. Uh, and the prosecutors from the Justice Department are asking a judge to hold him in jail to detain him because of the amount of threats that they have perceived him to have and exactly what he had done in recent days that led to his arrest warrant and him being picked up by federal authorities. Allison? Kaylin Polance, thank you very much. I want to turn now to CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller, also legal analyst Joey Jackson, and former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Um, John, Donald Trump posted the Obama's neighborhood and street. And sure enough, this guy showed up with hundreds of rounds of ammunition, two firearms, a machete. Is this what's called doxing? Is this when you put somebody's personal information and address out on the Internet for anything to happen? So doxing is when you gather someone's personal information and then use it to harass them, annoy them, frighten them, threaten them. Um, in this case, it's a little cloudier because what Donald Trump did was he, he reposted a art an article that someone else had written a long time ago and this person saw it and then he posted it under his picture saying i'm here um, we've got them surrounded um, you know and then he live streams about i've got to get a good angle i've got to get the shot and of course he has two guns and hundreds of, of rounds of ammunition in his car which you know, it's certainly suggestive that he might not have been talking about getting a better shot with his iPhone for his live stream. So, Joey, it's too cloudy, as John says, for, to, to, for, for Donald Trump to be in trouble for this. Is that right? Well, it may, it may not, right? I mean, I think we have to make a determination as to what's next and what we ultimately determine. It is a bit cloudy, uh, but it's not something that's appropriate or it's not something that should be done. Uh, kudos to law enforcement, right, for bringing this under control and for ultimately making an assessment as to him having weapons and everything else. Uh, but I think when you do a posting and when it's for the intent to aggravate, to harass, to annoy, and potentially to bring harm to someone, I think it needs to be looked at seriously not only as it relates to the former president, but as it relates to the initial person who put that out there. Uh, I think that law enforcement, remember who we're dealing with. We're dealing with a person, as noted, who's wanted in connection with and being prosecuted for January 6th. This is a person who has done mischief in the past. There's no reason to believe that he would not do mischief now. So thank goodness that law enforcement caught it. I just think mischief is too kind a word. It is. I mean, he it was in, he he's wanted, he was a fugitive for the insurrection. Yes. And he was, you know, live streaming that as well. He was saying things like, still waiting to get this show on the road. You know, where's Merrick Garland? Look, Mom, I'm an insurrectionist on TV. I mean, he was reveling in and, this and kind of thing. And on this day in Washington, he is live streaming, you know, this is where the Obamas and the Podestas live. We'll see them in hell. It's suggestive that something's about to happen. And while the doxing um, may not be a problem, if that's considered a threat, and there are there are lenses through which that would be considered a threat to the former president and a former White House official. Um, Title 18, U.S. Code 3056A, uh, threatening anyone who is 
under the protection of the Secret Service and certain former officials might apply here, uh, but they, they have them for the guns already. Yeah. Uh, they have them for January 6th, and those are cases that they're still building. So there may be more. Andrew, the reason that I'm focusing in on this is because the, the silver lining is that they did get this guy. So the guy, the guy Tarant, Taranto, he was a fugitive, basically, after January 6th, and now they found him. Terrific. But this isn't the first time that former President Trump has put out some information and people have acted on it. His followers, this guy was a supporter of Donald Trump based on his social media that we see. And much like the people who were the insurrectionists who say, oh, I was following the instruction of the president. That's why I came here. That's what this guy's doing. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. I mean, Caesar Sayoc, right? Or, uh, or the individual who, who took it upon himself to attack the FBI office in Cincinnati. I mean, we don't need another example, but this is unfortunately another example of the fact that this, there is a segment of our country, uh, uh, people who espouse particularly extremist beliefs, who listen very closely to what former President Trump says, and they believe they are compelled to act on his wishes. And many of the people who were uh, who have been arrested and prosecuted along the uh, as a result of their involvement in January sixth have have testified to that fact. And I think that this individual is yet another example of that. He's obviously following the former president on social media. He reacts to the posting that included the former president President Obama's address. We, how do we know that? Because he reposted it himself. So it once again highlights how incredibly dangerous it is for people in, in political leadership positions, be they uh, Donald Trump or anyone else, to validate and encourage these extremist beliefs to kind of rally up their base or seek whatever political advantage they think they get from it. It translates directly into violent actions, not not. Not every day, but enough to make it a real threat. Yeah. And I was just thinking about some of our other elected leaders and how dangerous it is for them, too, because he was looking for lots of people. So this guy also said um, he made these ominous comments about Speaker McCarthy. And he also did about Congressman Jamie Raskin. He says, coming at you, McCarthy, can't stop what's coming. As you said, John, nothing can stop what's coming. And he was saying similar things about Jamie Raskin. I mean, this is not this is uh, playing with fire. It is indeed. If you need any more, right, inquiry into how dangerous this can be, do you remember Speaker Pelosi's husband? And you remember what happened as it related to that, right? It could have been a lot worse in that situation. So I think at the end of the day, right, when you have a person who's caught with these weapons, when you have a person in an area where he shouldn't be, when you have a person with bad intentions, when you have all the things that add up to someone, and I won't say mischief, but certainly a person who is there with bad intentions who could do something that is pretty substantial, I think certainly we could see charges emanating from this. We know January 6th. Like what? I mean, what, what kinds of things does well, he Well, listen, the at? bottom line, is obviously it's a trespass. We know that. He's in a, com- he's in a neighborhood community. He shouldn't be. There's consciousness of, of guilt as it relates to him flight, right? The, why are you running if you weren't doing anything wrong? You know that they recovered things from his car. Were those authorized? Were they not? And the inquiry into whether or not he engaged in criminality here is did he take a substantial enough step to engage in any crime? And the answer to that may very well be yes. And so I think we have to wait and see as to what specific charges. I also think half the battle is is, is stopping it. As Joey said, just turn to the Pelosi example. How much of this is huffing and puffing and, you know, internet uh, palaver? 
and what part of it is real. I can remember uh, when I was in the police department, we had a guy showed up at Gracie Mansion, the mayor's residence, said, I'm here to arrest the mayor, citizen's arrest on, you know, on behalf of QAnon. Um, a number of weeks later, uh, he showed up at the home of the boss of the Gambino crime family and killed him because he had this conspiracy theory about the government being in league with the mafia and you know, supporting the pedophiles and the deep state. And these conspiracy theories run deep in these people's heads. That's right. And that's why it's so dangerous to ignite them uh, through whatever means, particularly social media. Um, gentlemen, thank you very much for all of that information. We've got newly revealed details on what the DOJ knew before the search of Mar-a-Lago. Plus, law enforcement is testing what they describe as a dime-sized bag of cocaine that was found in the West Wing on Sunday. They're trying to identify who brought it into the White House. And later, the roller coaster malfunction that left riders stuck upside down for hours. New details tonight about what the Justice Department knew before the search of former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. We're learning that prosecutors had surveillance footage from multiple angles showing that boxes of classified documents were moved. My panel of Andy McCabe, Joey Jackson, and John Miller is back with me. Um, Andy, let me start with you. Why would a judge want this uh, to be released to the public? Why did the judge want the public to know about this information? Well, it looks like the government actually moved to have this document uh, unsealed. You can see on the first page, they say the United States provides notice that document 153-1 has been uh, previously partially redacted, has been unsealed. So it's likely that the that the revelation of these documents and discovery has made the continued sealing of this particular affidavit no longer necessary, at least in the most part. There are still some major pieces here that that remain redacted, uh, but more of the document is is available for the public. The court has a preference for revealing things and removing the sealed nature of documents as soon as it's no longer necessary to protect the investigation or the sources and things like that. So this is just a kind of a standard uh, thing for the judge to do during the course of a uh, criminal litigation. Okay, I got it, John. So this new, less redacted version of the affidavit shows that the DOJ knew that the boxes were being moved around Mar-a-Lago. It wasn't even a question. They had video of it. So they know more than even the, you know, the people who, I, I assume that people at Mar-a-Lago were wondering what they knew. And it turns out they knew more. Is that a surprise? Not to me. I mean, if you look at an affidavit in support of a search warrant, you know, you lay out what you need to show that you have probable cause to believe a crime has been committed and the evidence is at this place. They had that and a little bit more, um, but they include some information to establish probable cause, but not everything they know. I think the key here, though, is uh, it's the same affidavit we saw before, but less redacted. So what lines got peeled back are interesting, which is um, really really parts that go towards the obstruction case, which is it's not just that the boxes were being moved and that it was captured on videotape, but there was a certain ballet to this movement. They were moved from here to there on this date, but then back from there to here on this date. And then they include interviews with someone who's referred to in the document as witness number five, um, who we believe to be Walt Nada, who talks about you know, they observe him moving the boxes on this date. And then he's questioned on that date. 
and then he's asked specifically about where the boxes are and, you know, whether they were moved and where they were moved to. And, you know, in the indictment, there's a line where, you know, they ask him about the boxes and where they went and how they got there. And he says, honestly, I wish I knew. Uh-oh. So we're seeing, we're seeing layers of moving the boxes to hide them from what they think is going to be a search warrant. And they're right. Um, but they know more than the people who are moving them around thought they did. Who's in more trouble Former President Donald Trump or Walt Nada, given all of this? So I think both are. And I think, Allison, it's important that this be released because I think the government wants to be transparent with the American people, particularly around this indictment. If you're going after a former president, you know, the narrative is this is a witch hunt. Everyone's out to get me. You want to show the public that we have the goods. We have information demonstrating that these boxes were moving around in all types of places. We knew they were moved around. We made efforts to secure them. We reached out to you and said, hey, just give them back. You didn't do that. You misled us several times about it. So I think it's so important that everybody see what's going on. The other point to be made, and John knows this very well, oftentimes when prosecutors call you in, they have a lot more than you'd ever imagine they would, and they're just waiting for you to incriminate yourself. And so I think here it spells out chapter and verse, this shell game, the lack of you know cooperation in any regard with the government who just wanted the items back, and had they gotten them back, we may not even be here. Andrew, let's move on to cocaine at the White House. Um, How does this happen, Andrew? Aren't there dogs? I mean, when you're being checked into the White House, as I have uh, several times, aren't there dogs outside? You're being wanded. Your bags are being opened up. If this was a visitor, let's say, since it was in the area where visitors are asked to check some of their belongings and their cell phones, how does this happen? Really hard to understand how this happens, because as you know, Allison, if you have a special badge, if you work at the White House and you have a particular ID badge, you basically badge your way in past security. They know who you are. They see you every day. You show your you show your ID. But if you're not a White House employee, if you're some a visitor or they're on business, you go through several, several um Uh, locations of screening, and it includes going through a magnetometer. It includes surrendering all your bags. You're separating out your electronic devices, putting those things through a uh, x-ray machine. So um, I think what this shows us is that possibly in that security search, and I'm sure the Secret Service is asking themselves the same question now, they are looking for those things that might cause some sort of a, a risk or a threat to the to the protectees inside the White House. And of course, the president is the most important of those. But maybe they're not looking for the sorts of contraband that you know you would expect like TSA or somebody to, to look for during their kind of screening. So I suspect that this is going to result in a uh, a bit of increased vigor and um, uh, scrutiny that's given not just to the people and what they have, but like ap- the absolute min- minuscule contents of bags as they go in and out of the White House. John, you think visitor or staffer, or what do you think's happening here? Could be anybody. I mean, that's that entrance. That's Echo One. I've been through there before. I've been through there armed with no check as a police official. I've been through there unarmed as an intelligence official and gone through the process that Andy described. Um, and, you know, he's right. They're looking for anthrax. They're looking for biological, chemical agents. They're looking for bombs, guns, knives. Um, but they're not looking for, uh, you know, what we would have called a dime bag. I'm sure it's more than that now, uh, of, of powder, you know, in a Ziploc. Now what they're looking for is whose print is on that plastic bag, yeah. whose skin cell DNA might have been left behind. Is it in a government record? 
If they're a staff member, a military person, somebody like that, the odds are if they can recover it from that bag, it is. Um, it could be a reporter who was there for an interview, a citizen who was there for a, a special tour arranged by the White House staff. Uh, but there are logs, there are cameras, there are um, there are records. So there are cameras. You're saying there are cam- like, would there be cameras in that room? Right. There are cameras in that room. And there are those cubbies where, you know, if you're going into the sit room, it's a skiff. So you've got to take your cell phones and put them in there. But unless this person took this tiny little bag and did it the way you do it in a Broadway play. <laughs> <laughs> I think they'll be caught. You, you know, you, you might, you might not see it on the video, yeah. but you might see the timing of their arrival and, right. you know, but some furtive movement. There's a lot of lab analysis and other things. The FBI is pretty adept at this. I think ultimately they'll get the skin cell DNA or something else and they'll connect it to one or more individuals who were in that room. Okay, certainly fascinating mystery. It <laughs> yes, will be solved. Thank you very much, gentlemen. All right. A holiday weekend of nearly two dozen mass shootings, including one in Philadelphia where five people were killed. What's behind the surge in violence on the holiday? We talk about that next. Cities across the U.S. are reeling after a 4th of July weekend marred by gun violence. More than 20 mass shootings over the holiday weekend. That brings the total mass shootings in the U.S., to 357 this year alone. Joining me now is CNN national correspondent Ryan Young. Ryan, tell us which cities were hit hardest by the gun violence over this holiday weekend. Allison, when you look at this, though, the spread across the country is just so hard to look at. You think about Philadelphia, you think about Baltimore. But one thing I did this afternoon was I scanned through a lot of the sound from across the country. And people in different communities sound the same way. They sound heartbroken, scared, and afraid, especially after all these shootings. And you see that map. You see the spread across the country. You think about Philadelphia, where you had five people killed, when you had a man randomly walking through with an assault rifle and a handgun just shooting at people and injuring and killing them. Then you have Shreveport, where there was a block party. This happened for 15 years with no problems, no incident. And all of a sudden, three people are shot and killed they didn't find the fourth body until sometime this morning because there was high grass and they couldn't find that body until it was first light. There are neighbors in that community who say the gun uh, shooting happened for more than 12 minutes. And then it goes on where Baltimore, you had two people killed and 28 others injured. When you think about the totality of this and you look at the spread across the country, you understand this is such a big problem from community to community. They were asking for Congress to step in. But as you know, we have this conversation all the time where people say we really need to get down into investigating these crimes and maybe solving them. But that always doesn't happen as well. Right. Um, Ryan, let's talk about the Philly mass shooting, okay? because I understand that those were privately made weapons, meaning these ghost guns. So how does law enforcement trace those? Well, that's that's the tough part there. They're really handcuffed with this because a lot of times those guns are made. They're hard to track. Um, you talk to anybody who works in law enforcement, and this has become a part of their worst nightmare because you can order these parts from the Internet, have them arrive, and you can personally put them together. You see what Philadelphia is doing here. They're actually going to sue the makers of some of these supplies for the ghost gun. Uh, two of the companies they spotlighted was Polymer 80 Incorporated and JSD Supply Um, both hoping to put a stop to some of these ghost guns coming into their community. And when you listen to the DA who's fired up about this, you can understand why the pain is really pushing them to make some different changes and go after some of these companies. Take a listen. All indications are that he did it alone. 
in, in terms of the act itself. We see all kinds of indications of premeditation in the weapons he brought, the way he brought them, the clothing that he was wearing, things of that sort. But when you get into issues of psychological state, motivation, intent, beyond the obvious, which is that he obviously planned this. Yeah, and Allison, one of the reasons why we picked that soundbite to show is when you think about someone sitting at home who might be mentally challenged or maybe upset or angry or maybe getting ready to do something, the idea that you can go online and order some of these parts to make a weapon, you can understand how difficult this is for law enforcement who's already dealing with a lot of illegal weapons out there in the first place. Now you add this other component of ghost guns, the conversation is definitely going to take a change, especially with this being a part of it. And now you see the city stepping up to go after these companies. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out, especially now we're at a point where you can't even pray for the victims in one mass shooting before another one happens. A lot of us knew already before this weekend happened that July 4th and 5th was going to be very difficult for this country. It's really interesting, Ryan, because they're notoriously bad. July Absolutely. 4th, is no, for the past decade, has seen a spike of mass shootings. It's obviously so tragically ironic about the day that is most American, the holiday that is supposed Absolutely. to be celebrating American independence. Thank you very much for all of the reporting, Ryan. So what do avid gun owners think the solutions are to mass shootings? I sat down with a group of them, and you're about to see part two of Pulse of the People. Plus, this roller coaster ride goes terribly wrong at a Wisconsin festival, leaving people stranded upside down, not for minutes, for hours. We'll tell you about their rescue coming up. It's been another 48 hours of rampant gun violence in our country. In part two of our conversation with gun owners, all of whom are passionate Second Amendment advocates, you'll hear their suggestions for what can be done to cut down on this gun violence. But we start with how the gun violence has touched their lives. Paul, if you could just tell us a little bit about your personal story. Your family was at the Clackamas Center Mall during a mass shooting in December of 20. 12, and your brother-in-law was killed during that shooting. Right. My brother-in-law is actually killed by a young man, like a typical mass shooter, uh, 20-something, who armed with an assault-style rifle. And, you know, Steve was shot from almost point-blank range in the back of the head. I, I went and picked up my sister, and I spent the next week with them and, and learned a great deal. And, um, you know, the, the, the traumatic impact of a shooting on a family and then three days later, the Sandy Hook school shooting happened in Connecticut. You know, when you think you can't feel any worse, you can't feel any lower. And then Friday morning that week, we have 20 first graders slaughtered in our classroom and six teachers and administrators by another young man armed with an assault rifle. And so I just said, I can't remain silent anymore. I've got to speak up. Um, thank you um, for sharing all that. I know that that's not easy to talk about. Um, Ty, you, you, I was interested also in your personal story that you became a, a gun shop owner, but you don't send your daughter to school. You homeschool her because you're afraid of school shootings. Is that right? Um, part of it, yes, is because I am afraid of, of afraid of that happening. Um, because I, be, you know, I believe that with all the mad things that's been going on now with the world, that schools they they need to. You know, they need to have these schools armed with, you know, security, armed security. 
they it's, it's things that they need to do to make the schools a hard target. Yeah, I just I want to speak to what Ty said. I also have a four year old, a one year old. Um, I'm joining this conversation because I'm a concerned mom. What we are seeing is that more guns in circulation has not made America safer. Um, you know, as the CDC states, it's now the number one cause of death for our children. Um, and other countries, you know, don't have to deal with school shootings on a regular basis like we do. And so if we are going to live in a nation that has millions of gun in, guns in circulation, then how do we live with them responsibly? I think that looks like safe storage laws. A lot of times it's a child getting their hands on their parents' guns and committing suicide. Imagine living with that if you um, had to live through that personally. Um, Ramia, what do you think the solution is? You know, we blame the individual, we blame mental health, we blame the gun, but we also need to blame the masses and masses, masses of production that is being um, created in regards to guns um, for the profit of the gun industry. And so we need to remove any mechanism on a state level or a national level that would absolve the gun industry um, from any responsibility of the violence that is pervasive in our society. Okay, go ahead, Chad. So I think the more income inequality that we see in a given society, the more violent crime that we see. The root cause of violence is not the downstream piece of metal or plastic. Uh, that's the end result. Uh, it's really the upstream problems that we need to address. Gun education, we, we pulled that out of the schools. We put subsidies out there for everything else, uh, electric vehicles, et cetera. You know, this would be a perfect opportunity to put a you know, our taxpayer dollars where our, our mouth is. We need a root cause analysis. There's not going to be a one size fits all that that stops, uh, you know, gun violence in this country. You know, it, it, what's going on in Chicago with the gun violence is not the same that is going on in Omaha, Nebraska with gun violence. Number one, the most effective tool in this country to keep guns out of the hands of somebody who shouldn't have a firearm is a universal background check. My brother-in-law was killed. You know, the thing that really got me the next morning was when the officer came over to help us write a public information statement, you know, my one of my first questions was, doesn't Oregon have a safe storage gun law? Because the shooter knew his buddy didn't lock up his firearms and he left them all loaded. And there was no consequence for that gun owner. He didn't have it safely stored and people died because of it. I don't want to carry that burden the rest of my life. I can't believe other people do. I'm back with John Miller. We're also joined by New York State Republican surrogate Joe Pinion and Rolling Stone columnist Jay Michelson. So, Jay, I just thought it was interesting to talk to people who don't want to give up their guns. They, they all have their different reasons for having guns. Um, they all have what sounded to me like legitimate reasons. They got them for all different through all different times in their lives. But they are, of course, disgusted by the gun violence and they have different solutions. And so it is so maddening and vexing that their lawmakers, that all of our elected lawmakers can't do any of these things. Well, I think, yeah, there's two things that really emerged for me. First, you know, there's a tendency to kind of demonize the other side, whatever the other side is. And we see that this is not the case in this issue. Here are people who care about their guns, who care about their interpretation of the Second Amendment, but who support common sense gun safety regulations. But what's frustrating about this is that a lot of these uh, these specific regulations that were proposed have already, uh, that in, in, by, in the segment, were proposed by Democrats and Republicans shot them down. Now, I know that Joe will say that's because Republicans don't trust Democrats, but there is a reason why people don't trust Democrats, because there are people sowing mistrust. Opportunistic politicians, people in the media, constantly sort of making it very extreme that you're either an NRA lunatic or you want to take away all our guns. And neither of these, there are people who are those on the, on the extremes, but the vast middle of this society 
wants sensible gun regulation. So I think we need to think about checking our mistrust at the door and taking a risk to actually work together. Yeah, people have to come to the table. People have to sit at the same table and hash it out together. And Joe, why can't we solve this? There is no trust. Um, And I think that's not just on this issue. I think it's across many issues. I think we see time and time again, we've made compromise an evil word down in D.C., but also in our local politics. We see people who effectively are always trying to find ways to leverage power for partisan purposes and partisan purposes alone. So, yes, we should be able to come to a table and say, hey, here are my concerns. Here are your concerns. What's the low-hanging fruit there? But I I think, again, until we're going to be able to have a Democratic Party and the Republican Party have that conversation earnestly, you know, on some base level, we're wasting our time because the politics always get in the way of the people. It's just awful. I mean, they're getting in the way of children, obviously, who are being killed. I mean, young people are being killed in all this gun violence. John, as a member of the law enforcement community, aren't police so frustrated by this? The fact that they have to go out into these streets? Can they? I mean, what's the answer for them? Well, very frustrated. And One of the reasons they're so frustrated is because, you know, we wrestle with this, we struggle with this, like there's some kind of mystery, like we can't solve this epidemic. It's so hard, it's not. I mean, if you go to Democrats, they're like, it's the guns, we've got to stop the guns and go after the gun makers and the guns. If you talk to Republicans, they're like, suddenly interested in mental health. We've really got to invest in mental health. If you talk to a cop, they give you a very simple common sense solution, which is we know and we proved in New York City, in Miami, in New Orleans, in Newark, New Jersey, when you increase gun arrests and when assertive prosecutors carry those out within the law, when gun carriers and shooters go to jail and then to prison, guess what happens? We know this for a fact. Gun crime goes down. In 2017 and 18, we had the lowest gun crime in recorded history. And then you see They changed the game, the factors, uh, uh, criminal justice reform things, raised the age on juveniles with guns, and you see that climb. Now, New York City still hovers in the world of, we have three or four murders per 100,000. Places like in Philadelphia live at 20. Places like Baltimore live at 50. Places like New Orleans and St. Louis live at 60. This can be fixed, and we already know how. We just have to kind of separate the rhetoric from the process. Well, I think even to that point, right, even when we've had it at our lowest levels, it's still too high, right? And so I think the most telling and compelling thing that we heard from that panel is something that we clearly do not talk about on the news or in society, which are the underlying drivers for the desperation that causes the crime. And I hear you, Joe. And and I heard, uh, obviously, what Chad was saying about that as well. But that seems harder to tackle than safe storage. Safe storage, like, like you said, there's some low-hanging fruit that they, it could be solved tomorrow I, with the wave but, of a pen. But, Allison, we got to learn to walk and chew gum. Joe's exactly right. Somebody needs to deal with the, the long-term contributors to this. That's a strategic problem. Politicians don't like that because it's hard, it's costly, and they can't take credit for it next year. So you really have to invest in that. The crime is the tactical problem. You can fix that right away just by enforcing the laws we have then you have to invest a decade or two in solving the strategic problem, which is racial disparity, poverty, uh, social ills that really are harder to tackle. 
We yeah. keep ignoring that on the idea that we can do some quick fix with a piece of legislation or a press release. I but agree. There, there is low-hanging fruit on the mental health side as well, right? So in addition to the factors that you just mentioned, John, yeah. there's also, if uh, I'm not encouraging anyone to do this, but if folks change the channel, there is rhetoric right now in yeah. mass media that is amping up rage, that is amping up this, this sense of us versus them, that, yes. that Democrat liberals want to destroy the country and things like that. And if we look at who's committing some of the mass shootings, there is a profile of a sort of a young male in enraged, hard right-wing figure. I'm not blaming that's, mainstream that's, Republicans that, but that's for that, that. but there is little, incitement to yes. violence on the media all the time. I that is, but that and is Joe, kind of insightful yeah, and incendiary. But Joe, right? I, I do have to go, but it is true. There is a profile that we see repeatedly. There's plenty of profile, but, but the overwhelming majority the, of people that get shot every single yes, day are true. not from well, that I'm profile. I'm so I think mass if, shooters well, well, right but, now. But it is mass shooters because we... If I know we got to go, but just quickly here, if you're looking at what we commonly describe as mass shooters, the definition changes from news cycle to news cycle. And I think we lump in the people when it's convenient. We exclude their pain when it's inconvenient. And I think that's what we're talking about here with the long-term drivers that time and time again get dismissed. I hear you. I take your point and I thank you all for this conversation. Meanwhile, okay, this is up there on the list of things that you do not ever want to have happen at an amusement park. Getting stuck upside down on a roller coaster for hours. Two firefighters behind the complicated rescue. Join us next. Imagine being on a scary roller coaster ride. Now imagine it breaking and being stuck upside down for hours. That happened to eight roller coaster riders in Wisconsin. Officials say the fireball coaster stalled at the top of the loop and it took special equipment and teams of rescuers to get them down. Joining me now, two of the heroes who helped bring everyone down to safety, Captain Brendan Cook of the Crandon Fire Department and Lieutenant Adam Finn of the Antigo Fire Department. Um, gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Captain, let me start with you. How did this happen? Do you know what went wrong with this ride? Uh, at this time, we don't know exactly what went wrong. All we know is that the ride was stuck in the upright position. Okay. So you had to devise mm -hmm. a plan with your team of how to get everybody down. How long did that take you? Did you know what to do in this situation? Uh, pretty much as soon as it was dispatched, we were already starting to call for extra resources, knowing that we didn't have the special equipment or the specialized rope rescue training that was needed to affect this rescue. How did you know that you needed specialized rope training? Uh, just off of previous training and awareness, um, knowing that this was reported as being 50 some feet up in the air, um, we don't have that specialized training in order to affect that rescue. And there's other departments near us that have ladder trucks, specialized rope rescue teams, and this is what they specialize in. Lieutenant Finn, I think it's you, right, that we see in this video in the bucket who's starting to get people down. Well, okay, so I think that that's you right there that we're watching. So it took hours. How did you, how did you, were you talking to the people who were hanging upside down? How are you keeping them calm while you were doing this? Yeah, we were talking to him the whole time. Um, I actually had two other guys from Rhinelander Fire Department with me as well uh, doing the rescue. I was more just in charge of operating the bucket platform there um, with that truck. It's very helpful with this kind of situation where we can get them safely onto that platform. And you can see the other ladder truck, too, that was just kind of there for guidance and assistance if we needed any additional help. And what kinds of things were they saying and what were you guys saying to them? They were all just very scared, um, so we were just trying to keep them as calm as we could, just kind of talking to them about what school they go to, ages, things like that, what they like to do for fun. 
um, just dealing with kids, you just kind of kind of keep them distracted and give them assignments, so to speak. So if we need them to help us in a way to get them down, then we would tell them, hey, we need you guys to do this or move your head this way or do something. And that distracted him enough to kind of keep him calm. How old were they? Uh, I believe the eight rages were from ages eight to teenage years. And then there was an adult gentleman, too, that we took down. And then also, Lieutenant, you couldn't just free, I think, from what I've read, you couldn't just free one at a time. Somehow you had to tether them, or maybe they already were tethered together. What what complicated this rescue? So because of how the cars are designed, when you use the key to open up the shoulder harnesses, four would come out at once. So certain cars had four people in them, so we had to tether the other side to make sure that those didn't open as well. And then just individually rescue each person. So we used ladder belts and webbing to secure them to the bucket as well as to us and able to get them down safely that way. That would have been a disaster if you hadn't have known that. Captain Cook, did you know that, that the key would open four at once and all of them would fall out? When we initially got on scene, it was reported that we might be able to do one at a time. Uh, but shortly after, we figured out that wasn't the case. And that was what also accelerated us asking for additional help because we realized this was such a complicated situation. Um, Captain, are you going to go on a roller coaster ever again? I personally am not a fan of heights to begin with uh, in that type of situation. So I'm going to continue keeping both feet firmly planted on the ground. Mm -hmm. Good thinking. And and you, Lieutenant? I mean, I'm an adrenaline junkie, so I try anything once. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Gentlemen, thank you very much. Great work. And thanks for explaining it to us. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Polls show former President Trump is gaining ground in the 2024 race despite all of his legal troubles. How are his rivals reacting? That's next. Welcome back to CNN Tonight. New developments in the Trump investigations, a less redacted version of the Justice Department's search warrant for Mar-a-Lago last summer, reveals what prosecutors knew before the FBI went in looking for classified top secret documents. Investigators say, quote, video footage reflects that evidence has been moved recently. Joining me now, CNN legal analyst and former assistant U.S. attorney Jennifer Rogers, CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avlon, Editor-at-Large at Reason, Matt Welch, New York GOP surrogate Joe Pinion, and Rolling Stone columnist Jay Michelson. Great to have all of you. So, Jen, this affidavit, um, what did they know? What, what does this less redacted affidavit reveal? Well, not a whole heck of a lot, Allison. It's still heavily redacted. But at least we know that they knew about some of the shenanigans in and out of the storage space, right? And that not only... Uh, forms the basis of the classified documents piece of the case, but the obstruction part of the case, right? All of this in and out, and Trump was reviewing documents, and they were hiding all of that from his lawyer at the time, Evan Corcoran. So it's really important evidence, and we didn't know how quite, how early DOJ was on to that, and that has ended up being one of the, the big building blocks here. But we'll have to wait to see more. Of course, Trump and his team will have access to the unredacted version, and they'll make their challenges to the search warrant based on that. The rest of us will have to wait and see as the litigation proceeds whether we can learn more. And does it look, Jen, to you as though Walt Nada, who was Donald Trump's body man, meaning, you know, he was he was helping him at all times, sort of an aide, and he was apparently caught on tape moving the boxes. Is he in more trouble today? Well, you know, no, because... 
DOJ obviously has known what's under there. So this is not really about who's in more trouble or less trouble, but what we all know about what kind of trouble they're in, right? Um, but yes, while not, of course, was wrapped up all in this uh, obstruction piece of the case. So, uh, you know, he's in the thick of it. And as soon as he gets himself a lawyer and actually gets litigating in this case, we'll have to see what he decides to do when faced with this question of whether he'd rather face these charges or perhaps cooperate against his boss. John, the latest polling from Fox finds that Trump has gained ground since the post-indictments. So since this, all of this stuff has come to light, his polling numbers are up among primary voters. What does that tell us? It tells you that the Republican primary voters feel sort of a rally around Trump effect based on the indictments. But, but I, I, you know, and it, we need to emphasize to folks, that's not a national audience. That's Republicans. And, and it does mean that uh, they're rallying to him because they feel he's being somehow uh, not prosecuted, but persecuted. That said, there is a 0% reason to do anything but enforce the law in face of polls. It, don't, don't over-index it. Don't think it's going to last forever either. Um, if, they, if they're reacting negatively, the fact that accountability is finally being imposed, let, let's see how they feel in six months or eight months. But what makes you think it would change? I think because gravity starts taking over. The, the reality that while his poll numbers are rising among Republicans, they're sinking like a rock among independents, among the general electorate. Um, and, and if Republicans and, and, and look, Republicans, you talk to them, off, they, they all know this is a disaster to have a, 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 a multiply indicted ex-president who tried to overturn the last election, be the standard bearer going to the next one. But they're all still afraid of Trump. They're afraid of the base. They're afraid of those poll numbers. And so they're, they're trying to keep it down unless their name's Chris Christie, in which case you're really embracing it. Uh, but but it, it, it's, it's not going to last. I'm not saying his numbers are not. He's, he's, he's in poll position right now. Yeah. But uh, some people will look at this and say, see, the problem was we enforced the law. That just made him stronger. That's exactly the wrong lesson to take. Matt? I think when you look at the numbers, what, what's striking to me, especially over the last like tw- two, three months, it's a small bounce right now. We're not talking about a large bounce. He's, Donald Trump's been around 50% plus a couple uh, percentage points for a long time. State, national, doesn't really matter. DeSantis is at 20, and then everybody else is in the single digits. It says to me one of two things. Either, um, uh, and this is what I really hope for, no one's really paying all that much attention because, damn it, it's July and June of 2023. We should not be paying. We should be touching grass and watching baseball games with John. Um, <laughs> however, um, it could also suggest, perhaps, that there is some number, and this is the greatest question in American politics right now, what is the uh, lowest possible number of the Trump support within the GOP. Is it 50%? I tend to think that it's probably lower, but mm-hmm. it's not going to be all that much lower, probably. How many peelable votes are there right now? Um, I think it might be 40, it might be 35. We don't know. Um, but until the Republican Party figures that out, they are stuck in a bit of a doom loop, right? Because Trumpism is not popular with the general electorate. It just isn't. How many times do we need to see that proved out? Um, and so until there's a Republican challenge to that, a meaningful one that's not 16 people, it's a couple, they're in trouble. Joe, you have your finger on the pulse of Republican politics, being our uh, Republican. So uh, why aren't the Republican, uh, his Republican opponents seizing on it? And do you agree with their assessment of what will happen next? I, I disagree with the assessment. And part of the reason that the opponents aren't seizing on it is because they realize that if they did, their numbers would go down and his numbers would go up. And I think you see that reflected in what's happening with Chris Christie, who has some of uh, the highest uh, negatives of any candidate running, in spite of the fact that he is 
is, uh, for all intended purposes, a quite accomplished governor who got a lot of stuff done in New Jersey. So, yeah, I think the reality is that, no, I don't think gravity uh, takes over. I think in many ways, President Trump is only going to go up from here, but also correlation, not causation. It's also because of the fact that the other people, namely Ron DeSantis, who was touted to be the preeminent challenger to President Trump, has in many ways continued uh, to bite his own tongue and stub his own toe, uh, including that latest bizarre ad uh, that ended up on Twitter, because again, it appears they're more concerned with trying to win the Twitter news cycle than they are with actually trying to cultivate an actual constituency within this Republican primary that has all of their hopes and dreams still in the basket of Donald Trump. I almost feel we need a whole different methodology for dealing with this phenomenon, right? Which is some, having, some, having to do something with the cult of personality and how mm-hmm. people do or don't change their beliefs. And it does seem, I think Jen just perfectly summarized what's going on. This case is about shenanigans. That's the legal term. I could define it. It's Latin. But basically, we know what this case is about. But it does not matter, right? It clearly does not matter. I think that that question of, like, what's the percentage of Republicans assume this up, that is the question. But we need to be thinking about what, what, if anything, I mean, maybe we should be talking to culty programmers, what, if anything, can penetrate the kind of orbs of misinformation and of, and of group belonging? And I'm not, this is not a right or left issue, right? This happens on the left as well, where there are cults of personality. And we saw it with what's sometimes called conspirituality, where ostensibly left-wing people take on right-wing conspiracy theories because it fits their mm-hmm. worldview. We are seeing a real growth in profoundly non-rational and non-reflective thinking in this country across the ideological spectrum. And it's frustrating to come here night after night and talk about the latest development that no one seems to care about. There there is a pattern for how you get people out of cults. I mean, that reverse radicalization process. The problem is it's not scalable. But, but, you know, that is a known pattern. You need to confront people with their ideals, not go directly at the figure they've attached themselves to for reasons of saving face, but remind them of what their own alleged beliefs were and let them de-escalate. But right now, the environment is, is creating this groupthink. Uh, but the fever will break. Cults do end. Um, and, and law and accountability has got to go forward no matter what the horse race polling shows in the short run. I, th- I find your optimism really defiant. intriguing. <laughs> your defiance is John Avon 101. There's hope was, for us. I, 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 I like what you're somewhere. saying about the fever breaks because obviously we fight misinformation every day here at CNN. But there was an insurrection. So the fever yeah. didn't exactly break before there was a violent insurrection. Well, I, I, I'll just That's say. not 50% of the Republican Party. Right? No, of course no. not. I'm just saying that in terms of John saying that people come to their senses at some point, not always. Well, some people come to some of their senses. And there's <laughs> and and to the point, it, it is everywhere on the spectrum. It is not it is not only right focused and that sure. should be pointed out. That's Look. true, but let, let's not do the mythic moral equivalence here. I mean, I think when Jay's talking about is, you know, Robert F. Kennedy, the, the anti-vaxxer stuff is a good example of the, the horseshoe theory where the the far right and the far left conflate but but right now there's no equivalent to donald trump and the numbers in the are Republic, different they're looking the like 10 15 yeah, yeah, yeah. of democrats I, I, falling for this guy whereas it's it's you know 56 percent. i, I think guy. there is this misnomer that president trump created the paradigm for our current body politics when in reality it is our body politics that created donald trump and i think mm-hmm. that this is the kind of uh, kind of a really bizarre way of how we try to approach covering President Trump, which I think makes it very difficult to understand what's going through the minds of Republican voters. I get that you don't agree with that, but I also think that's why you keep thinking that somehow but, the but, fever but is Joe, going to but break. Joe, but Joe, people have you're, been you're, you're, you're a Republican who's expressing distaste for what's going on, but not offering a prescription for how to solve it other than don't dare t- 
take on Donald Trump directly. You know, at some point you got offers for solutions. You know, well, heal what, thyself. What, what would you do if you were trying to stop Donald Trump from being the nominee as a Republican? What would you do? Well, my job is not to stop Donald I'm, Trump. No, no, from being no. Nominee. Saying, my job is to stop Joe I, Biden from having a second well, well, term. Okay, but, 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 actually, that might be the same. Might be part of the job. Be clear here. Just first, are you endorsing Donald Trump for re-election? I'm not endorsing anyone. Okay, good. So, do you think the Republican Party should nominate Donald Trump? I think the Republican Party should nominate who the people go into the polling places. See, and vote th- that's for. not an answer. Well, I think it is an answer, and I think maybe you don't like that answer because no, I just think it's right. a bystander, not a leader position answer. Uh, well, the, re- my re- the reality is my position okay. is to say that we have to do what the people in the party want to do. I think that is that's that, not taking a stand. I don't taking a stand for what my job. What's I'm, Chris right. Christie is running for president. I'm not. My job is to sit here with you and try to figure out why it is the Republican voters continue to support President Trump in spite of what has been thrown at him. And I think the reality the reality is that people stand. believe that, well, you call it what you want to call it, but I think that that's just what we're dealing with right yep. now here. All right. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank right. you very much for the debate and all of the perspectives. Coming up on tonight's reality check, the social media account that went viral purporting to be from a left-leaning, well, wildly le- liberal activist, but it may not be what it seems. John's going to explain. A federal judge ordering some Biden administration top officials to stop their communications with social media companies about certain content. This is a win for GOP states in this lawsuit against the government, accusing them of going too far in their effort to combat COVID-19 disinformation. And this just in, the Justice Department is appealing the judge's order. My panel is back with me. Okay, Jen, um, tell us what you think about this ruling. What do we need to know here? Yeah, Allison. So this is a deeply flawed ruling. I mean, the kind of common sense macro view that the judge is going to prohibit large swaths of the government from having any contact with social media companies when things show up on social media that are dangerous, that threaten our national security, that threaten individuals' personal safety is ridiculous. But as a legal matter, it's seriously flawed. You have no standing here. You have a uh, misunderstanding on the part of the judge of First Amendment jurisprudence. You have a vastly overbroad injunction issued on so many levels. This uh, opinion was improper. I think DOJ is very smart to appeal it. I think that they will win that appeal. And uh, I'm sure the panelists will talk more about how outrageous the notion of this is in a more general sense. But legally, this is very, very problematic. Um, Matt, here's what the judge said. Uh, blocking the Biden administration from communicating with social media companies, specifically flagging content or posts on social media platforms and are forwarding such to social media companies, urging, encouraging, pressuring or inducing in any manner for removal, deletion, suppression or reduction of content containing protected free speech. That's a lot of legalese. It is. Your thoughts on this? There's also a lot of, uh, of uh, kind of open door in the second half of the injunction allowing for some national security kind of uh, uh, suppression or jawboning to get in, which I find is unfortunate. I think it should have been broader. I think the outrage here is from the government's behavior, especially in the year 2021. Wait, yeah. wait, just uh, help us understand. What do you think they should not be doing? I think that the, gov- that the president of the United States shouldn't be saying Facebook is killing people because that's nonsense on toast. I think that the Surgeon General of the United States shouldn't be out there uh, calling for a whole of society, not even whole of government, a whole of society crackdown on misinformation, which he then 
fails to define. I think that Jen Psaki, as White House press secretary, shouldn't be telling Spotify that you got to do more about Joe Rogan here. That's crazy. 20 years ago, after 9-11, we all remember this, right? When Ari Fleischer came on, he took so much heat from CNN, from a lot of people here probably, from me definitely, when he said um, that in the wake of 9-11, Americans need to watch what they say. That's all he said. There wasn't anything, you know, backed up. There wasn't regulation. Americans that he was talking about didn't have business in front of the government, the federal government. He said that he took a ton of heat because we understood we don't want the government to be telling us that. Now we have the government telling social media companies, you need to kick Alex Berenson off Twitter. That's bad. They're using national security to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop laptop story, which wasn't a national security story. That's bad. So the outrage for me is not this ruling. It's weird. It's 45 pages. The outrage is in the government's behavior, especially in the year 2021. Jay. I mean, look, this really is the Twitter files case. This is a weird mismatch of a sort of sublimation of anger at at exactly what Matt was talking about. I'm not sure I share that anger, but that's what it is, that rage into a very bizarre order that is sure to be overturned on appeal. This this particular judge does have a record of kind of some wacky rulings uh, on, uh, you know, that's just his track record. I don't need to say MAGA to know that that's what it is, but that's what it is. And I think this is a very poor vehicle for expressing some of that real concern. There's also a real naivete, and I don't think it's naivete, but a sort of willful naivete. Um, There are some exceptions in the order, uh, which Jen didn't include in in her quick summary of it, so just that, which do accept, you know, national security, a couple of other things, criminal acts, if there's a sort of, you know, sex trafficking ring that the government knows about, they can tell the social media companies and the social media, so there are those exceptions. However, it's obvious that free speech law does not mean you can say crowd, uh, you know, shout fire in a crowded theater. That's the cliche. That's true. What that just means is you can't say speech that causes imminent harm. There may be a question of fact as to whether COVID misinformation causes material harm. That might be an interesting factual debate, which we could have. But the idea that any speech, except for these tiny uh, exceptions for national security and so forth, is just allowed because we support free speech, that has not been the law of free speech for 225 years in this country. I think we find ourselves in a dangerous place where the government is effectively building back doors into private companies to monitor its citizens. I think we can have an intelligent conversation about where does misinformation begin, what qualifies as actually being a dangerous society. But we have many, many instances now that have been put before this, before put before us that show that these were not eminent threats, that these were just people who were saying things that people at the White House disagreed with, and all of a sudden the call would go out, the email would get sent. So yes, I would agree with you that this is probably again a ruling that will be overturned. This is probably uh, again a poor vehicle uh, to have that outrage sent there. But if we go all the way back to the Patriot Act, what happened with metadata, yeah. and we know all the things that were dangerous about that. I don't think this if is... If there was better right. regulation of these social media giants who have so much control... You mean their own So regulation. much impact. If mm-hmm. there was actual... Yes. Instead, we have this, like, vacuum. We, no, I'm, I'm not <laughs> arguing with you. you. Just, we, this, have a, this, we have a legal... This category vacuum. of journalists for more speech regulation is just bizarre to me. Well, but it's not what we were This is megaphone regulation. I understand what you're all This is like saying whether it's hate speech or whether... I have to get John in, because also... Misinformation is dangerous. We do know that. Misinformation, disinformation, and it is very hard to police, John, as you were about to show us, because in the reality check, you're gonna you have this particularly acute example of how hard it is to tell what is disinformation online. And misinformation. And I appreciate Matt's point about the consistent libertarianism I always appreciate on a panel. But this is a really interesting story about the difficulty and importance of dealing with some of this. So let's take a look at this. 
If you believe, like I do, that hyperpartisan polarization is one of the biggest challenges America faces, then you probably know that there's an outrage industrial complex proliferating online. It's this feedback loop between the extremes, and it's used as an excuse to increase distrust and division. The thing is, though, a lot of it is fake, all ginned up. It was brought home by a Washington Post story reported by Drew Harwell about a prominent social media account that purported to be a self-styled Democratic activist. Under the name Erica Marsh, the account went viral by carving out extreme positions on the issues of the day. The account is now suspended. But while active, get this, one tweet published after the Supreme Court's affirmative action decision, that tweet was viewed 27 million times, providing plenty of opportunities for I told you so outrage and virtue signaling from folks like Congressman Matt Gates. Now, for an allegedly liberal account, its audience seemed to have been primarily people on the right looking for confirmation bias. And according to the account's biography, this wasn't some random person on the far left screaming into the digital wilderness. No, it was someone who purported to be have worked as a field organizer on the Biden campaign, volunteered at the Obama Foundation, someone who seemed to be in the proximity of power. But as it turns out, that seems to be, does a lot of work. Because according to the Washington Post, there's no record of this person, Erica Marsh, ever existing. So, so John, who is, who is acting as Erica Marsh then? Well, this is part of the difficulty of figuring out the root of this stuff. But that's actually just part of the latest example of this sort of weird culture of trollish sock puppet accounts created by people looking to gin up anger and self-righteous defense on their side of the aisle. Seriously, let that cynicism sick in. And then understand why we need to do a better job of reining in disinformation efforts that are designed to divide our democracy. We need guardrails, reasonable regulation, especially with the rise of AI that promises to supercharge disinformation efforts going forward. It's a job for platforms as well as politicians who are willing to think beyond partisan self-interest in the short term and take action together to get something done. And that's your reality check. John, come back and join us. Thank you. That was a great object lesson. There you go. Because so she doesn't exist. I mean, basically... This Erica Marsh doesn't appear to exist. They can't find any records of her. And yet she gins up all this outrage and she's used by the right as look at this crazy liberal. This is what we're all fighting against. But she's a boogeyman. Yeah. And uh, thankfully, we had a, a lot of good private speech and journalism that showed that. <laughs> yeah. talking about on this nice private network here. It's a, it's a wonderful corrective. But no, it really is. And we saw that a lot during COVID. There's a reason why people are mad, because voices that dissented that were sometimes wrong, but sometimes they were also right, um, were kicked off of platforms under pressure from the government, it made the discourse about our measures worse. We should be mad about that. That's okay to be mad when the government wrongfully suppresses viewpoints. But Jay, let me get Jen Rogers in. Um, Jen, there's, I mean, uh, I hear what everybody's saying. Yes, freedom of speech is obviously fundamental. However, disinformation and misinformation is dangerous. And if people aren't, if the social media platforms aren't self-policing, what's the answer? Well, listen, if this lawsuit were filed by someone who was kicked off and they filed a lawsuit alleging that they had been kicked off because someone in the government applied serious pressure, threatened the social media platforms if they didn't remove this person, then you'd have a real lawsuit. That's not what we have here. 
What we have here is a group of states that don't have standing trying to get what they got, which was a nationwide, you know, massively overbroad order saying that these large swaths of the government, not individual actors, but agencies, entire agencies are not allowed to communicate with the social media platforms. You know, you, you can't even point out that there's a, a problematic post. You have to trust that they will find it with their own algorithms. I mean, that the government has a massive, massive uh, infrastructure in place to find problematic communications. And they're saying you can't even let them know about that so that their own processes for taking out that disinformation can kick in. So it's just, it's an overwhelmingly problematic order. Uh, it's uh, taking a blowtorch to, you know, pick your analogy, right? You need a little tiny hammer, you're taking a blowtorch. It's not the right approach here. And uh, it's definitely going to be overturned. Gotcha. I mean, if we were to zoom back, I think Matt brought up the Patriot, Patriot Act and, and some of the controversies, you know, 20 years ago. If you were to tell me 20 years ago that these fundamentally unregulated, gigantic monopolistic companies would have so much authority to either regulate, to suppress speech, to allow speech, to decide who to regulate, that it would be up to one billionaire, Elon Musk, to totally change the rules of the game on a platform that has massive impact in terms of how people act, in terms of... I thought you were crazy. I mean, we're living in this bizarre digital gilded age where because of the failures of government to do what they're supposed to do, which is to have standards that we can argue about, that we could have a, you know, a libertarian and a non-libertarian argue about in, a, in an actual democracy, we would actually debate some laws and we would figure out what the standards would be. Yeah. Instead, there's been this complete abdication of responsibility and it's the Wild West. And so there are these back channel uh, connect connections between the governments and these companies, which is, I agree, completely completely outrageous. But, but that's no it. one's talking. Like, I hear you, right? But it's not like Joe Biden's getting on TV and saying, uh, we must either hold these tech companies uh, to the actual letter of the law when it comes to Section 230, or we must actually get rid of those protections. No one's really having those real conversations. Well, I hear you see you shaking your head, but... Well, I, I am. I am, because this has been a conversation, both President Biden and people in Congress. This has been a bipartisan priority. Part of the frustration is... If it was a bipartisan priority, it would have happened. Like, I, I, no, I, I Joe, welcome say, to Congress. Right, no, this, it, this it, is the problem. It, this, it, is, this is the problem. Both there, parties there is bipartisan. 230, but in completely different Exactly ways. right. But there is room for actually establishing some reasonable regulations, some basic guardrails. It's something that should be able to get done, and it needs to get done. So it's not at the discretion of whoever's running the federal government at any given time. We've got to put partisan considerations outside and think about what's best for a democracy. That's why we need rules of the well, road. that's what okay. you're saying, but that's not what's happening down in D.C. That's, that's all I'm saying. Yep. Right? I think there is, a, there is a broad coalition of people that goes beyond, you know, Republican or Democrat who want to see something get done. But even in the legislation around TikTok, we said, that that was even an abomination. I mean, it was an abomination that made, you know, the Patriot Act look like it was something you would actually want to have in your life. So <laughs> oh, all right. it, it, it's, it's really a problem. I think we just need to get to the real, the real issue here because what you're talking about is great, but no one in D.C. is actually having that conversation. Let's leave it there. I often give Joe the last word, as you know. I'm just going to let just, you do that. I know you are. Thank you. I appreciate that. Up next, Ukrainian President Zelensky in a CNN exclusive interview warning that Russia may be planning an attack on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine, Europe's largest nuclear facility. We have more next. New concerns in Ukraine tonight that Russia may be planning an attack that could unleash a nuclear disaster. Ukrainian President Zelensky tells CNN's Aaron Burnett that Russian troops could be planning a terrorist attack on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. So uh, I, what I, I, I have really from intelligence, I had documents. I, I don't, I can't tell you what, what kind of documents, but it's 
something connecting with Russia. Mm -hmm. I said that they are technically ready to do something. It's very important that they mind some lo local minings. Yes, you, so at local. Zaporizhia. At, uh, yeah, at the in the station. They technically are ready. And that's why we pushed MAGATE. MAGATE in English, I'm sorry. IAEA. IAEA, yes. IAEA, yes. And we pushed them and we said, look, your team there, you're four. There are four, four people. And this plant is like city. Mm. It's really like huge. city. It's huge. huge. It's very big. Yeah. Four people will not find mines. Joining me now is Colin Clark, Director of Policy and Research at the Sufon Group. Colin, thanks so much for being here. Um, so uh, let's talk about that. Why would Vladimir Putin unleash a nuclear disaster so close to his own borders? Well, I mean, uh, look, nothing is beyond the pale for someone like Vladimir Putin. Uh, this is an individual that has detained people, tortured them, executed his own citizens. He'll do anything to hold on to power. And I think coming on the heels of Evgeny Prigozhin's aborted mutiny, he feels more vulnerable uh, and his legitimacy more challenged than ever before. So Putin may be looking to do something drastic in order to kind of gain the upper hand. Hmm. Okay, let's listen to what President Zelensky told Aaron about how he believes Putin will now have to consolidate Russian power and society even further in the wake of Prigozhin's failed mutiny. Here it is. I think that Putin will make attempt to consolidate his society. He will make everything in order to break and nullify the Wagnerites' fame and everything they were doing. He will be distancing himself from all that and will be communicating extensively in order to unify the society. His society is ununified. Pay attention to this interesting example. After all these events, where did Putin go? I can tell you, he rarely comes out to the street. We see him in his offices, etc., but we never see him out and about. Um, Colin, you've written an opinion piece in The Times this week about the relationship between Putin and Prigozhin. So what do you think Putin will do next? I mean, I, I tend to agree with Zelensky here. I think, you know, he's desperate. He's uh, he's never been embarrassed the way that he was just recently with Prigozhin kind of standing up and marching into Russia. Uh, you know, if you've seen these interviews with uh, with Putin, where he's at one end of the really long table and uh, someone else is at the other really long end, whether it's Macron or someone else, now all of a sudden he's out in the streets glad-handing with Russian citizens. He's he's backed against the wall, and I think Putin is is likely to try to consolidate power. But the, the reality is he needs Wagner, or if not Wagner itself, another Wagner-like entity. Russia is now addicted to mercenaries, and they rely on uh, this kind of sub-state actor uh, as the tip of the spear for Russian foreign policy. They can't live without it. So let's talk about that. I mean, since he has dispensed with Prigozhin, and many have said that Putin looks weakened after Prigozhin's failed uprising, so what will he do without Wagner? Well, he's got a couple of options. One, he can disband Wagner and, and try to reflag them under the Russian military. Uh, that comes with its own set of uh, complicated circumstances, including the fact that many of these individuals have been accused of war crimes and crimes against humanity. It makes Russia even more of a pariah in the international system. Uh, he can try to disband Wagner and put them into pre-existing private military companies. 
Uh, that kind of decentralizes their power, though, and makes them less of a force multiplier. Or what I think he's most likely to do, install a new head of a Wagner-like entity, someone far more pliant than Prigozhin, and try to go about his you know, business as usual, which is essentially what he's told uh, African leaders and others in the Middle East, not to worry, don't worry, the Russians aren't leaving, we're still going to be there operating in the same fashion. Uh, it just may be a different head of Wagner, although that also has its own kind of drawbacks because many of Prigozhin's men were, were fiercely loyal to him. Uh, Con Clark, great to get your expertise on this. Thank you so much. Obviously, we will watch, uh, wait to see what happens in this uh, very tense moment. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Just ahead, a series of shark sightings and attacks in Florida and New York over the 4th of July holiday weekend. Is this normal or is something different going on? We're going to get answers from wildlife expert Jeff Corwin. It was a busy holiday weekend for shark sightings and attacks. In Florida, frightening video shows a shark swimming right by a bunch of swimmers near Pensacola. In New York, on Long Island, five people were bitten by sharks in the 24 hours between Monday and Tuesday. In a separate incident off the coast of New York's Fire Island, a 15-year-old boy was bitten on the foot by a shark while surfing Monday afternoon. So what's going on here? Joining me now is wildlife biologist and host of ABC's Wildlife Nation, Jeff Corwin. Jeff, great to see you, as always. Why are there so many shark attacks in the New York area? Well, it's summertime, and summertime means people are loving the beaches, they're surfing, they're swimming, and so are the sharks. All the betas in, Allison. If you know anyone like me, chances are you're on the water with your fishing rod, looking for pogies to catch the stripers and tunas, looking for the mackerel. Well, so are sharks. All the betas in at this zenith of life moment along our coastlines in New England and New York and Connecticut. The sharks are there. The people are there. The good news, though, if there is good news, is these are probably very small sharks, maybe like sand tiger sharks. Certainly not great white sharks. If it was a large predatory shark like that, it'd be more than just someone getting bit on the hand or the foot. It would be quite a serious injury. Yeah, but I don't want to be bit on the hand or the foot either, by the way, by a smaller shark. But did you see, Jeff, that that video of all the swimmers in Pensacola? And the shark is so close to the shore. Isn't that unusual? Isn't that different seeing a fin like that, that close? It's actually not unusual at all. Every time I'm in Florida, I see sharks. Every time I'm on the water, I was out today and uh, I saw a shark. So they're very common. We've said this before. If you're in a healthy, pristine marine ecosystem, you're never more than 300 feet away from a shark. And most shark attacks happen in five feet of water or less. In the case of this shark, this shark was not interested in the people. This was likely, I'm guessing it was a very large hammerhead shark, and it was clearly in pursuit of fish, a school of fish, which it was hammering into as they do so well, because there were a lot of nice, delicious-looking people on the beach there, (laughs) and that shark didn't mess with any of them. Okay, I will take some comfort in that. Do you know how the number of shark attacks already this summer does compare to previous years? So there have been a lot of uh, attacks this year, and 
Thankfully, we've not had a significant amount of fatalities. The most significant shark attack we had was actually in the Caribbean where a woman uh, lost an appendage uh, when she was scuba diving. Actually, she was snorkeling and was likely hit by a bull shark. But thankfully, we haven't had any extreme attacks as of yet uh, that I'm aware of. But they are up. And I think that has a lot to do with a lot of people are spending a lot of time at the beach, in the water. We are also seeing an increase in shark attacks. So there you go. It's up by one. Not so bad. Am I reading that right? No, you're reading it right. But it's only, I mean, we're only halfway through the summer at most, maybe a third way through the summer. And and I just was wondering, because there seem to be so many sightings, I know you'll probably say that they're just being reported more. People have more cell phones. But it feels like there are more. I mean, do you understand why people are feeling a little freaked out this summer? Absolutely. Because we're seeing an increase in shark numbers in New England, and we've mentioned this before, because the the seal population is increasing, gray seals, harbor seals, well, that is the ultimate buffet treat for a shark. That's why we're seeing more sharks here. And along the wet, uh, Florida, the southeast coast, we're seeing more sharks because there's a lot of fishing going on. And there's a lot of shark fishing going on and a lot of interactivity. And that is likely increasing sharks. It's also the breeding season. This is when sh- people are there for all the shift and the, the fish and the healthy ecosystem. The sharks are there for the same reason. They're pupping at their nurseries. We've had a lot of rain. Uh, I mean, you know what it's been like in New York here in Massachusetts? It's been raining, rain through our 4th of July. And that turbidity in the water makes it hard for sharks to discern between a tasty fish and a human being. Yeah, I don't like that. Um, But, um, Jeff, I also want to get to um, this video that you sent us of a whale um, being caught in fishing gear. And just tell us how dangerous, obviously, this is for the whale, but also for the people trying to rescue the whale. Well, this is, a, a, this is a horrible situation we're in right now. This is a, a North Atlantic right whale. And Allison, only three, we were just discussing this recently. And because of our conversation, I really delved into this situation. It's really catastrophic. 340 remaining North Atlantic right whales. They're getting hit by container ships and other vessels when they navigate from Florida up north. Their, their climate change is affecting, affecting their fisheries in the north, but they're getting entangled in fishing gear. Here we see a crew. Uh, we have crews from NOAA, the, the, the Center for Coastal Studies, which are experts at going in like we see right here. But this is dangerous work. But these folks with uh, CC, uh, with Coast, Center for Coastal Studies and with IFA, the International Fund for Animal Welfare, they're doing whatever they can to save this species. Allison, they only produced 11 surviving offspring this year. That means this uniquely New England ambassador whale species will become extinct at this rate within the next few years. So every whale matters, which is why we have groups like CCS and IFA and NOAA out there trying to save these whales. Well, thanks for alerting us to this desperate situation. Um, Jeff, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Monday and Tuesday were the two hottest days ever on planet Earth. We'll tell you the temperatures next.
Our planet hit its hottest temperature ever. Two new world records were set over the last two days, according to the U.S. National Centers for Environmental Prediction. The first record was set on Monday, when the average global temperature reached 62.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Then yesterday, it climbed even higher to a world record of 62.9 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, those temperatures may not seem like a heat wave to the average person, but the figures are almost a full degree Celsius above the average between the years 1979 and 2000. And they represent a new indicator that the Earth's climate is heating up faster than anticipated. Scientists say climate change combined with the warm weather pattern known as El Nino are responsible for these rising temperatures. On that toasty note, thanks for watching CNN Tonight. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.